Good morning, Your Honor, and may it please the court, Sean Murata for the appellant Ford Motor Company. All agree that this case turns on the connection prong of specific jurisdiction, which requires that Ford engage in suit-related conduct uh, that creates a substantial connection with Minnesota. Or put differently, Vandermeer's claims have to arise out of or relate to things that Ford did in the state of Minnesota. Here, there is no suit-related conduct by Ford in the state. This vehicle was assembled in Ontario. Its allegedly defective uh, restraint system was designed in Michigan. The vehicle was first sold by Ford in North Dakota, and there was no Ford warranty work that was engaged in in the state of Minnesota. So all of the things that uh, Ford is alleged to have done in the state of Minnesota don't have a connection to Bandemir's particular claims in this case. Counsel, which um, standard is are you relying on? Is it the relates to or is it the arising out of? I, I think it's, I'm not sure you can parse it that much, Your Honor. We don't, in fact, think there's a whole lot of distance between arise out of or relate to. Um, you know, courts often, you know, court opinions aren't statutes. You don't try to give independent meaning to every word. But I think what I'll say is this, that even under an arising, or sorry, even under a related to standard, uh, it's simply not met in this case because there's nothing that the claim that relates to in this case, nothing that relates to Ford's um, particular conduct in Minnesota. All of the things that Ford is alleged to have done in Minnesota, sell vehicles, have advertisements, sponsor sports. But counsel, you know, I read that in your brief, but when you look at how in the, in the uh, BMS uh, decision, when you look at BMS and how they define uh, a rise out of or relate to, and this is on page 1780, they go on to then say it must be an affiliation between the forum and the underlying controversy principally an activity or an occurrence that takes place in the forum state and is therefore subject to the state's regulation. So when I read that language, I look at, well, what principally occurred in the forum state? Well, the accident occurred in the forum state. And so I grant you that uh, when you're talking about uh, specific uh, jurisdiction, uh, and in, when you look at BMS and Walden in those cases, they talk about the defendant's relationship to the forum, and, th and that's key. But when you look at the actual BMS decision, one of the things they talk about is that it ha the activity has to take place in the forum state. And so wh what do we do with that? When the main activity in question here, the injury, or isn't that the main activity, took place here in Minnesota? Well, let me answer that in two ways, Your Honor. First, I'll focus on the language about the activity or the occurrence. I think that's best read to talk about the defendant's activities or occurrences because Bristol-Myers Squibb says it, Walden versus Fior says it, going all the way back to Helicopteros where we first have the mention of the arise out of a relate to standard. It's uh, the relationship among the defendant, the forum, and the but claim. But if that's true, counsel, then, you know, again, when you read BMS, the principal focus of the opinion is what the plaintiffs were doing. So it's not, it seems to me you, we can't ignore that. That's why they, gave, they go on to say the non-residents were not prescribed Plavix in California. They didn't purchase it in California. They didn't ingest it in California. They didn't seek um, uh, 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 treatment. treatment yes. Thank you. <laughs> they didn't seek treatment in California. 
So where does that leave us when we're I, looking, I think when where we're looking at it? Is that you absolutely describe Bristol-Myers Squibb's facts, but what I'd point the court to is the discussion of the analysis in Bristol-Myers Squibb, where they, when they walk through the arising out of a relate to, and they say, we begin with Walden. Walden was a case where there was foreseeable harm in the forum state, in Nevada in Walden. And, but none of the defendant's relevant conduct took place in the forum state, Nevada and Walden. So even though the plaintiffs claimed that they were injured and injured foreseeably in Nevada, there was still not the sufficient connection. Then they jump to Bristol-Myers Squibb. They say Bristol-Myers Squibb, the plaintiffs in that case, are even easier because they weren't injured. They weren't even injured in the forum state. So it's true to say that because there was no injury in the forum state, Bristol-Myers Squibb was a really easy case. But you still have to take the part where they go through Walden and they say that merely suffering foreseeable harm in the forum state is not enough. And that's for good reason, because if suffering foreseeable harm in the forum state were sufficient, that would mean that the plaintiff's conduct, the plaintiff's conduct would be sufficient to create specific jurisdiction over a non-resident defendant. And if we know one thing from Walden, it's that the plaintiff's ties to the forums are not enough. So that Greg Hansen purchased a 1994 Crown Victoria in Minnesota, that that vehicle was registered in Minnesota, that there was um, uh, you know, treatment sought for the accident in Minnesota. All of those things aren't things that Ford Counsel, did. Counsel, let, th thank you for that. Uh, the, let me ask another question, if I may. The other, it seems to me, sort of animating principle that comes out of BMS is their reliance on, on fed concepts of federalism and comedy. And you mentioned that in, in your brief as well. This idea that there might be other, just because you, one state, Minnesota in this instance, have some particular interest doesn't mean your sister states might not have an equal or greater interest in, um, in, the, in this matter, in, ex in exerting jurisdiction in this matter. And that strikes me as odd because that idea of federalism, we thought that kind of went away after Worldwide Volkswagen, but the Supreme Court has been sort of resurrecting it um, as they go through their jurisprudence, uh, jurisdiction jurisprudence. But my, so my, but my question is, what other state other than Minnesota would, ha as a matter of federalism, because that seems to be an animating principle in BMS too. So what other state other than Minnesota would have an interest given that the injury occurred here? I'm just curious your, your thoughts about that. And I guess another way of asking that is, where do you think Ford can be sued on this? Sure, well, of course, Ford can be sued in Michigan and Delaware. Those are general jurisdiction states for it. I think there's also specific jurisdiction over these claims in Michigan because that's where the allegedly defective uh, airbag system was designed. And if you look at where, you know, the regulation is about regulating Ford's allegedly tortious conduct. Where did that conduct occur? It occurred in Michigan, where the design decisions were made, where the allegedly defective design. So, counsel, if if the car was actually purchased from a Ford dealership in Minnesota, does that change your answer? If, if the vehicle was first sold by Ford into the state of Minnesota, yes, I actually think that would change our, my answer. And is that the pivotal question for you? I, I, I think it's... You know, it's all fact specific, and so we'd have to say, well, what did Ford do in Minnesota that you know makes these claims arise out of or relate to? So, if Ford sold the vehicle in Minnesota, then certainly under the causal test that we that we advocate, 
that would be part of it. So then what about the fact that Ford sold 2,100 of the identical vehicle in Minnesota? What impact does that have, if any? It has no impact at all, um, because those vehicles have nothing to do with these claims. And in fact, Bristol-Myers Squibb was just about that. There was a lot of Plavix sold in uh, California in Bristol-Myers Squibb in that case. And the plaintiffs essentially said, you know, what's the difference? We have claims that are similar to the claims that are being brought by these other plaintiffs who uh, are uncontested to have personal jurisdiction here on the same product that was sold here in vast quantities and also marketed here. And the court said that's not enough. It has to be a tie between your claims, not just other people's claims and the same kind of product and some sort of marketing, a tie between the specific claims at issue. Counsel, following up on Justice Hudson's question, is there any place where the Hansons, I think that's their name, and Ford could be sued in a single lawsuit? Are we gonna have a problem of two lawsuits with two empty chairs? You might have to bifurcate the suit, but I think Bristol-Myers Squibb responds to that where it simply says that personal jurisdiction must be uh, proper over each defendant in the case. So the mere fact that you have two defendants, one defendant, 100 defendants, the personal jurisdiction analysis doesn't change. When you say bifurcate the case, you mean there'd have to be two separate lawsuits? There, there may have to be, Your Honor, but again, that's- Well, may or will. I mean, what you're, you're, you've been working on this case for a while. You're an expert on specific personal jurisdiction. Is there any place in the nation, in your judgment, where the Hansons, and, and Ford could be sued with specific or general personal jurisdiction over each. I am not aware of any facts about the Hansons that would allow them to be sued in Michigan or Delaware or North Dakota. But again, I sim it's simply irrelevant to this. Doesn't case. make any difference. It doesn't make any difference because Bristol Myers Squibb said that, and in fact, it was citing Rush versus Savchuk. So again, the court over time, and it makes sense because you shouldn't allow a plaintiff's pleading choices, in other words, to add the Hansons as a defendant or add other people as a defendant to drive the defendant's personal jurisdiction analysis. Ford's constitutional rights should be the same no matter how many defendants there are in the case. Counsel, you you know, a couple times you've, uh, and actually you started your presentation with the test arising out of or relates to. And I found that interesting because as I read your brief, you are suggesting that the relates to standard that we used in Riley um, is is incorrect, that we should be looking at a, a, a more direct causal statute, yet you, you, I think, correctly quote BMS as including that very language relates to. And so I, I'm wondering, am I misunderstanding you or um, help me with, with that? Because it seems to me that that is the standard, and Bristol-Myers Squibb says that is the standard, so I was confused about why Riley is inconsistent with BMS. So I think there's, there's a couple different things, Your Honor. Of course the cases say arise out of or relates to. The question is what does it mean to arise out of or relate to? Um, we think from first principles that a causal approach is probably the best way to approach that. And in fact, that's the way that most courts that have addressed the issue, including the Eighth Circuit, have done so. But yet we think you can take Riley. But that's not the way BMS talks about it. That is not the standard that BMS sets out. I mean, and you get that from there must be an affinity between the forum language like that. In fact, I don't think BMS ever really tells you what arising out of or relates to directly means. It tells you what it's not. I, I think that's absolutely right, Your Honor. We're not saying that Bristol-Myers Squibb is your causal, you know, Bristol-Myers Squibb requires it to be a causal test. We're not making that argument. What we are saying is that Bristol-Myers Squibb at least rules out this case. It rules out this case through its discussion of Walden. Because again, the- Well, that's why I was trying to get it. it. It rules it out, So, but thank you for that. So you're not saying that it holds that there, that 
there has to be this direct causal standard? No, we think the causal standard comes from the full run of cases. It comes from, you know, the, uh, when it talks about, um, when all the cases talk about, you know, ari arising out of, and it, um, the, the connection between uh, the defendant's contacts. And I would again point this court to all the other courts that have uh, read these as, as creating a causal standard. The Eighth Circuit, the Tenth Circuit, uh, most state high courts that again have directly addressed this issue because part of the problem with a non-causal test, and I think your honor gets to this, is you really don't know what the standard is. You might be able to figure out what it's not and you might through sort of analogy figure out some cases fit within it and some cases that don't. But it comes becomes kind of formless. You say, well, this, this contact feels close enough, but maybe not that contact. And yet, you know, one of the things that personal, uh, personal jurisdiction tests are supposed to do is allow a defendant to figure out, to structure their primary conduct. Where will I be sued and where will I not be sued? A causal test, a but-for test. You know, courts and lawyers are familiar with that. You think counterfactually, assume I had no contacts with Minnesota. Would these claims be exactly the same? And the answer in this case is yes. Uh, if Ford Why would Ford not expect to be sued in a state where you've sold thousands of cars, you've done various uh, safety testing here, the accident occurred here, the defendants are here. Um, I mean, you're Ford, for guys. You know, but, but so I, why I, would I you not expect kind of to be sued that, that here? I that sort of fell by the wayside in Bristol-Myers-Squibb, right? That was sort of the argument that was made in dissent by Justice Sotomayor. She said, look, what's the big deal if Bristol-Myers-Squibb has to face a couple extra lawsuits here? And what the court said is, well, one, it's about that, that sort of um, prediction about not just whether you'll be sued in a general sense, but also the scope of your liability. So the idea that you know, if Ford is selling 2,100 cars here, it shouldn't be sued on 50,000 cars here. And I think one, one problem with plaintiff's argument in this case is, it's not clear where this suit couldn't be brought. Because I think the only thing that limits this to Minnesota is the idea that, well, the accident occurred here. But again, we think under Bristol-Myers Squibb and under Walden, suffering injury in the forum isn't enough. So once you have that taken care of, Ford markets across the country. So he could have brought this suit in any of the 50 states. Ford's conduct in Minnesota. What about the fact that Ford has availed itself of Minnesota in many ways, which I think goes to what Justice Hudson was saying, in that it's really a totality. I, I agree with you if you single that one, that the car or the accident occurred here, and that's all that we look at, that that would not rise to the level. But when you look at all of the factors, and, and, and to me from our case law, it says that we can do that. You have Ford, sure, markets nationwide, but you also have some targeted marketing. The Northland, that's, that was targeted towards the Midwest. Um, you, I think there was a 1966 Mustang for the Minnesota Vikings. Not that they deserve it, <laughs> given last night. But I mean, that's targeted towards Minnesota. You've taken data from Minnesota and from the dealerships and the cars sold here to inform Ford as to what they're gonna do in further designs. And in fact, the specific uh, model of this car was sold here. Um, and you have obviously made money in Minnesota. So when we put all of that together, why does that not um, meet the standard? The reason it doesn't meet the standard, Your Honor, is because that comes pretty darn close to a sliding scale. What it says is, well, Ford does a lot of stuff in Minnesota, so that can offset the lack of the connection. But of course, that's what the California Supreme Court did in Bristol-Myers Squibb. It said, well, Bristol-Myers Squibb does a lot of stuff here, so therefore it's going to offset the relatively little connection between these particular claims and California. And the Supreme Court said that doesn't find support in our case law. And I agree with you, in fact, as, as recently as Riley, the court suggested that it evokes a sliding scale 
some of the case law. So I'm not saying that, you know, you're misreading the Minnesota case law. I think you have to, though, take into account Bristol-Myers Squibb that says, you know, evoking that sliding scale just isn't the law anymore. What do you do with Burger King? Uh, you know, it's interesting what you do with Burger King. The answer is, I think you just have, I mean, that, that language in Burger King, it, it had nothing to do with the case. And I think it's simply squarely refuted by Bristol-Myers Squibb because it, it's, it would be odd to say in Bristol-Myers Squibb there is no sliding scale between the amount of contacts and connectedness, but to say there is some sort of sliding scale between connectedness and the fairness factors. It just doesn't jive with Bristol-Myers Squibb. And I understand Burger King does say that, but I don't think that language, which had nothing to do with the ultimate result in Burger King, can simply survive Bristol-Myers Squibb. And it also can't survive Walden, which speaks of the connections not in a totality, but suit-connected uh, suit connected contacts. So it's not just can you identify some contacts that occur in Minnesota, but can you identify contacts that are suit connected? And here you can't. There is simply nothing that Ford has done in the state of Minnesota that is connected to these particular claims. Because the things that plaintiff has identified, you know, if he went to Arizona and brought this case, or if he went to Texas and brought this case, he could say the exact same things except for the fact that the accident happened to occur here. Can, can you just, um, uh, just on the facts, so I understand that the dealers pay, you know, they decide on the advertising. Mm -hmm. Does Ford provide any money for that? Is there, as part of the franchise, how does that, what is that relationship? Sure, the relationship, Your Honor, is as we, and this is at addendum page 24, where we discuss the Ford, uh, the Ford dealer advertising funds, is that the regional Ford dealer advertising funds decide what marketing to run in the Minnesota market. Uh, Ford may, in certain cases, reimburse some of those expenses. But I think critically, Ford's not the one making the decisions. So if you're asking who is engaging in the purposeful availment uh, when it comes to that regional marketing, it's the regional dealer uh, advertising funds. And so, and, and, um, and they decide, uh, do they get to choose from some options presented to them or do they, does this, do they hire their own advertising firm to kind of come up with a, with a, a plan for advertising. So again, this is uh, addendum page 24. Ford provides certain creative content. So, you know, the picture of the Ford driving down the road and maybe some of the advertising copy might come from Ford. But when it comes to, you know, are we gonna run five advertisements on CBS, uh, you know, with the local news, that's coming from the regional advertisers. And so, and the mere fact that there's a contractual relationship between Ford and these Ford dealer advertising funds, uh, is irrelevant to personal jurisdiction. And you get that from Hanslin versus Decla, and you get that from Helicopteros that say that just because there's a contractual relationship between the defendant and a third party, that doesn't create specific jurisdiction. It but even if- and, oh, Go ahead, if you want. Oh, even, if you t even if you imputed that marketing contact to Ford, there is no suggestion that any of the ads that are being run have anything to do with not just this vehicle, but the Ford Crown Victoria generally. Uh, you know, this is a 1994 model vehicle. So there's no suggestion that when Greg Hansen goes out and buys the car in 2013, that he's seeing anybody encouraging him to get the Crown Victoria, which by the way, was a car that wasn't even being manufactured back then. So particularly on the facts of this case, there just can't be a tie between the marketing and the particular claims and issue. And, and can, you, can, can you talk about also just on a factual matter, just the data from the dealerships issue? So, I mean, is there any evidence in the record that 
the data from this particular car was sent anywhere, and if it's not being manufactured after 2013, was Ford even collecting any data from this vehicle? You know, How does that work? There, there's nothing in the record about the Crown Victoria or this Crown Victoria, and it's addendum pages 29 and 30 on the Ford brief. And, and I want to be very clear about this, because I think Vandermeer's brief gives the wrong impression. Uh, what the, the things that Ford were asked to admit were very general. It was admit that Ford gathers data about its vehicle performance in Minnesota and uses that data in the redesign of its products. That, that was the full question, it was that broad. And what Ford said was equally broad. It said, we admit that we receive uh, information about vehicles, quote, across from the US, including Minnesota, and that information may be used by Ford as it considers future designs. And that's all we could say given the breadth of the question. But there is no evidence in this record that Ford even had this sort of modern design process back you know, in 1994 when this vehicle was being designed. And there's no suggestion that there was data being collected about 1994 Crown Victorias or that there were any design decisions made on that sort of basis. And that's because the questions that were asked of us were simply not that targeted. And I think it goes back to the, the broader problem with Bandemir's position. What he does is he tries to aggregate a lot of contacts and say, well, you know, there's so many contacts, it seems fair, and don't worry too much about the connection part of it. Well, one finally, final question, just factually. There's a, there's a stipulation of some sort that there's no jur general jurisdiction. Can you just tell me what the, how that stipulation came up? What's the background on that? I, I, you know, I'm not sure I'm gonna say it's a stipulation in the sense that we both signed something. What I think I'll say is that Bandemir agrees that general jurisdiction, the Daimler sense, you know, in the at-home sense, is not met on the facts of this case. Of course, we had a dispute in the trial court about general jurisdiction in the consent by registration sense, which the Court of Appeals didn't pass on and would, would have to be resolved when this case goes back. But I, I think we should distinguish between general jurisdiction and those two senses. So that, that issue then is still alive, arguably. Yeah, yes, we would agree that when it, I'll say, when the court reverses on specific jurisdiction, it would have to go back to the Court of Appeals for resolution of the consent by registration issue. It was certainly presented in the district court. In fact, it was the primary grounds on which the district court ruled. It was briefed and argued in the Court of Appeals. They just decided to bypass it for this, this specific jurisdiction. Counsel, are there any um, courts or jurisdictions that have used the relates to standard um, with similar facts that have not found personal jurisdiction. Absolutely, Your Honor. I'd point you to Texas. That's the Spear Star case that we cite in our brief. Uh, so Texas is not a strict causation state. It's a non-causal state. And what it says is the mere fact uh, that some vehicles are sold here does not create a substantial connection as to vehicles that are not sold here. And so again, that Spear Star case, squarely on our side, and uh, is not a causal state. Counsel, let me ask you about what's in the record with regards to the claim here. As I understand it, the car is a 1994 Crown Victoria, but the claim relates to the airbag system in the car. Does the record tell us whether this airbag system is unique to Crown Victorias or 1994 vehicles or whether this is a uh, more general airbag system uh, for which defects have been claimed with regards to other models? Uh, we don't, Your Honor. There's nothing in the record with regard to that. But what I can tell you is in the record, and this is a Ford Addendum, page 34, paragraph 3, that there is uncontroverted evidence in the record that this airbag system, whether it's you know general to the platform or specific to this vehicle, because I do agree with you that some components do go across platforms, as we call them, uh, but this, via this airbag system was designed in Michigan. So 
Um, that's what we have in the record with, with regard to this particular airbag system. And I'd like to go back to something that was mentioned earlier about Riley, because although we've been talking causation, I don't want to suggest that this court has to throw Riley overboard. It doesn't. The area of Riley that I think the Court of Appeals relied on and that Vandermeer relies on uh, was very particular to the facts of that case. There you had advertising where Although there was no evidence that particular plaintiffs had seen the advertising or that they had based their purchasing decisions on it, the advertising itself was tortious. In other words, it was alleged that the advertising itself violated Minnesota law. And it was the means by which the uh, plaintiffs were solicited to engage in unlawful and tortious transactions, uh, usurious payday loans in that particular case. That has nothing to do with this particular case because there's no allegation that Ford's advertising in Minnesota was tortious unto itself. In other words, there's no allegation that the things that were seen on the well, In fact, in this case, there's no evidence that there was any advertising about Crown Victoria vehicles in Minnesota at any relevant time anywhere in the state. That is absolutely right, Your Honor. So first you have that. And second, there's no alleged scheme to have people go out and buy Crown Victorias in the state of Minnesota that this would be, um, that this would be furthering. Do I understand correctly? Maybe this, is, maybe this is in the record, maybe it's not. Um, uh, this, the limited number of vehicles Crown Victorias have been sold here, were, were those mostly institutional sales to police departments and things like that? Is that discussed in the record anywhere? We, we don't have a discussion in the record. There's a general response as to how many 1994 Crown Victorias were sold in the state, and the answer is a couple thousand. Uh, you are absolutely right, Your Honor, that later in its life, the Crown Victoria, and I'm speaking outside the record right. here, I should be clear. Right. No, You're absolutely right that the Crown Victoria generally, especially later in life, was primarily, was primarily a police vehicle, not a consumer vehicle. And oh. we say in our brief, I think, when we stop selling it to retail consumers. Counsel, I may have misheard you, but I thought you referred to the addendum at page 34. This is the Slater affidavit that the, uh, the airbag was designed in Michigan. That's right, Your Honor. Well, I don't, as I read the affidavit, I don't see Mr. Slater saying that. He says, the design and engineering decisions with respect to the Subject 94 Crown Victoria, uh, in particular as it relates to its front passenger restraint system were made in Michigan. So certainly he's saying the idea of putting this airbag system into the Crown Victoria was made in Michigan, but it doesn't say that the airbag system was designed in Michigan. Well, the, the, restraint, the restraint system that Mr. Slater is re referring to involves, and I guess in, in motor vehicle world, the airbag is considered part of the restraint system. It's a secondary restraint system. Your primary restraint system is your seatbelt. So when he's referring to the restraint system, that includes the airbag. And I, and I, I understand Mr. Slater to be saying, and I think plaintiffs understand to be, uh, Mr. Slater to be saying, that the design decisions with regard to the airbag, or the primary design decisions with regard to the airbag were made in Michigan. And I'll ask, um, opposing counsel the same question. What do you understand to be the claim as to what was wrong with the restraint system? I, I, what I under, it, it's, sort of a, it's sort of a mix of things in the complaint, but the best I understand it is this, that there is some sort of design defect that caused the airbag not to fire in this case. And we, act, we are not further enough in the case to know what plaintiffs think was wrong with it or what should have been done with the airbag system to make it fire. Uh, there's also an allegation of warrant, uh, breach of warranty, which we think is particularly weak on the merits given that this is a 1994 vehicle, but to the extent there was a warranty made, it was made in North Dakota when Ford sold the vehicle there. 
so those are what we understand the claims to be, and they have a strict liability claim and a negligence claim as well. So if you look at the things that Ford is alleged to have done that are tortious, making warranties, building the vehicle, designing the vehicle, all of those things were done outside Minnesota. And I think, just to get back to the affidavit, Your Honor, even if you think that doesn't say that the design was made in, uh, in Michigan, there's no allegation that the design was done in Minnesota. And I think that's the critical part, because of course, plaintiff bears the burden on personal jurisdiction, and there's been no suggestion that design decisions were made with regard to this vehicle or its airbags in the state of Minnesota. Counsel, what if any relevance is there to Worldwide Volkswagen in this case? Uh, well, I think the main holding of Worldwide Volkswagen is squarely relevant to this case, which is merely taking a vehicle from state to state um, is not enough to create specific jurisdiction. As the court said in Worldwide Volkswagen, your vehicle is not your, uh, you know, the chattel is not your agent for service process. Now, I take it, Your Honor, that you might be referring to a different passage in Worldwide Volkswagen that talks about Volkswagen if that were the defendant in the case. What I'll say is this. That was dicta, and in fact, this court said in Julich at footnote four that that passage was dicta because Audi and Volkswagen weren't defendants in Worldwide Volkswagen. They didn't contest personal jurisdiction in that case. So again, this, this court has specifically recognized that that particular passage is dicta, and I think it has simply no relevance to the case. But when you talk about the broader relevance of Worldwide Volkswagen, and I think this is one that's overlooked when people talk about Worldwide Volkswagen, is it aids Ford. It shows that just because vehicles go from state to state, that is not enough for personal jurisdiction. And I think the other relevance of Worldwide Volkswagen is what it has to say about this consideration of fairness or interests. What it says is, even if the defendant would suffer minimal or no inconvenience from being forced to litigate before the tribunals of the forum state, even if the forum state has a strong interest in having its law apply, even if the forum state is the most convenient place for litigation, the Due Process Clause, acting as an instrument of interstate federalism, may sometimes act to divest the state of its power to render judgment. And we think that's exactly the case here. To the extent that the trial court and the Court of Appeals were concerned about these fairness factors, Worldwide Volkswagen refutes it, Walden refutes it when it says that due process is primarily about the uh, fairness and the interests of the defendant, not the convenience of the plaintiffs of third parties, and Bristol-Myers Squibb refutes it when it says the same thing. Counsel, is Julich um, the best Minnesota case in terms of products liability specific jurisdiction for you, or is there some other case that you think is a stronger case for you in terms of Minnesota law in the products liability context? We think Julich, you know, we think Julich is very strong for us. That was a stream of commerce case, which I think is my opponent's primary argument. And in fact, in Julich, you know, it talks about when it gets to the connection prong, it finds no connection because the part that was alleged to be defective arrived in Minnesota through a series of third-party transactions. The exact same thing here. The vehicle arrived in Minnesota through a series of third-party transactions. And it's not just Minnesota that says that. We have the Tenth Circuit, the Third Circuit, Utah, Oklahoma, um, all of these different states and all the district court cases involving Ford that all hold that merely a third party bringing a vehicle into the state, uh, it has nothing to do with the stream of commerce. The stream of commerce is about the transition from manufacturer to distributor to retail customer. I'll reserve my time for rebuttal. Thank you, counsel. You have five minutes for rebuttal. Mr. Farah. Thank you, Your Honor. May it please the court. My name is Kyle Farrell. I represent the respondent, Mr. Vandermeer. Um, and I just want to really respond to a lot of the things in Ford's arguments. 
more so than the briefs and kind of get out of the briefs a little bit. If you take Ford's argument to its logical conclusion, courts in Minnesota would no longer be able to protect their citizens for products when they're injured in Minnesota unless the product was basically manufactured in Minnesota. Because Ford doesn't sell cars to individuals. They sell them to the wholesaler, as their brief says. So if they sell them to a wholesaler, then if their wholesaler is, let's say, in Michigan, basically you could only sue Ford in Michigan. That's not the law. It's never been the law. Volkswagen, worldwide Volkswagen, and Asahi. I think they're willing to let you sue them in Delaware. Yeah, it was interesting he said that. I heard the argument. I don't think if we were, well, Delaware, true, because that's their principal place of business or their state of incorporation. He said North Dakota, which I think Your Honor may be referring to as the original cell. I would be interested if we were in North Dakota, if we would be at the North Dakota Supreme Court right now arguing this. That issue hasn't come up in any of the cases I've reviewed for Ford. Um, the issue that tends to come up is this one, where the original cell was in a different state. If you look at what West Virginia did a couple years ago, their Supreme Court case, McGrath, is really on point. It's the exact same facts that we have here. And what McGrath says is, look, the stream of commerce theory still exists. Worldwide Volkswagen still exists. In fact, if you look at Bristol-Myers Squibb... Can I just pause, have you pause for a minute and, and focus a little bit on Worldwide Volkswagen because the result in... I wonder if the result in Worldwide Volkswagen actually cuts against your argument. It does not, Your Honor. And it doesn't because in Worldwide Volkswagen, we're talking about a dealership and a wholesaler up in... in I apologize if I'm, I'm wrong. I think it's New Jersey or New York. I can't recall. But they had no market in um, Oklahoma where the accident occurred. They didn't try to target Oklahoma. And that was ultimately the result of Worldwide Volkswagen. But wor Worldwide Volkswagen... Well, to be clear, the result in Worldwide Volkswagen is there's no personal jurisdiction. Absolutely. Because the, that entity, that corporation, did not target Oklahoma in any way, shape, or form. Didn't have any people there. Didn't advertise there. Didn't want its products to go there. So what Worldwide Volkswagen tells us is these mere fortuitous, random acts that are outside of the control of the defendant don't get jurisdiction. That's not what we have here. Ford targets Minnesota. It wants to sell its product. It wants to sell its brand. What Worldwide Volkswagen, and I think the quote in it is... But the problem for you is that the, this isn't a sales case. This case isn't like Riley, where um, where the argument was you're misleading Minnesota customers with your advertisement. I mean, that's not your argument in this case, as I understand the complaint. It is not. It is a true stream of commerce theory. That look, when you place an item in the stream of commerce, whether you use Justice O'Connor's from Asahi Metals uh, stream of commerce plus, or you just use the pure stream of commerce from Justice Brennan wrote, if you place a product in the stream of commerce and you have an expectation and a desire that it meets a certain market, you're held liable in that market. Worldwide Volkswagen says, out of your Volkswagen is simply, is not simply an isolated occurrence, but arises from the efforts of the manufacturer or distributor to serve directly or indirectly the market for its products in other states. It is Council, Council, if I could, help me with the, your stream of commerce theory because I mean, just now you cited both O'Connor's uh, opinion, but then Brennan has the, the concurrence, at least as to the judgment. And I kind of came away from the stream of commerce cases not knowing what 
the rule is, and and has that been has that been settled? Because it just it seems to me O'Connor and Brennan come out on different sides of that thing, and so where where is that that case law? So great question. If you look at the individual states, the way that they've looked at it is some choose stream of commerce, Brennan. Some choose O'Connor stream of commerce plus. I don't think the U.S. Supreme Court has really given us guidance as to which that, one of those. That's my two. point. So what do we what do we do what do we do with that? theory that you're arguing with the, to us now? Well, for, for, for our particular case, we easily meet e either standard, either the stream of commerce or stream of commerce plus. No question that we meet that standard. So the issue is maybe for the court as a policy matter, which one does the court want to adopt if, if, if one of those? Um, but for deciding the individual case in front of you, there's, there's no question that there's a plus. I mean, what O'Connor talks about the plus is having distributors in the state to sell your product clearly have that advertising in the state, some efforts to directly market to that state. We have mail to folks in Minnesota, which this court in Riley said is, is significantly enough to, to create the context. So whichever test the court looks at in the stream of commerce, we're there. Um, it, the, the last part of, of Worldwide Volkswagen I wanted to talk about was and a quote from Worldwide is, the forum state does not exceed its powers under the due process clause if it asserts personal jurisdiction over a corporation that delivers its products into the stream of commerce with the expectation that it will be purchased by consumers in the forum state. It doesn't have to be that product first sale. It's never had to be that. That's never been the law. In, World, in, in Bristol Myers Squibb, it says two different times, we're deciding this case based on well-settled principles of personal jurisdiction. Counsel, I just need to understand the, the argument from, from respondents here. Is it your contention that as long as Ford engages in activity in Minnesota that relate to the Crown Victoria in general, there doesn't have to be any specific conduct by Ford in Minnesota that gives rise to this particular lawsuit? That's correct, Your Honor. And that, that's the stream of commerce theory, whether it be stream of commerce or stream what of commerce What case supports plus. that proposition? What's the best case for that proposition that there doesn't need to be any in-state cause of action related activity by the defendant? I would say two, Your Honor. One, footnote three of Bristol-Myers Squibb, which is Sotomayor's dissent. And, but what she says in that, which I think is interesting, is Bristol-Myers was making the exact same argument to the Supreme Court that Ford is making to this, that basically our activities had to actually cause this very incident. And Bristol-Myers Squibb absolutely does not, uh, does not adopt that. And the majority or the dissent? The majority does not adopt that, that ruling that, you, that their in-state conduct has to cause, has to be a direct cause, approximate cause of the uh, cause of action. I mean, look, Bristol-Myers Squibb, all it really... Let's just go back to my question, though. I mean, what case law... You were citing Justice Sotomayor's dissent in Bristol-Myers Squibb as supporting your proposition, and then you said there were two cases. So what's the other case? And to be clear, I, I'm, I'm citing her footnote as to what the majority held in the dissent. I'm not citing the actual dissent. Fair enough. The other one is obviously not precedent or binding on the court, but it's West Virginia's Supreme Court from 2016. It's the McGrath case, which is um, on all fours with this. If you look at Bristol-Myers Squibb, you know, cases going back all the way to Helicoptero say there has to be a connection between the forum, the litigation, and the defendant. And what Bristol-Myers Squibb is saying is this forum doesn't have any relationship to the litigation. In fact, footnote one, which is in the majority of Bristol-Myers Squibb, I think is really interesting. 
It says for jurists. Also, which of Ford's contacts with Minnesota do you believe is most closely related? If you look at the stream of commerce theory, what the issue is, did you create a market for your products in that state? So I think really all, I, I, I wouldn't single anything out. Everything that they've done in the state of Minnesota to create a market to specifically target Minnesotans to buy their product, that's relating to this conduct because it's a vehicle. I mean, if we were trying to sue Ford over a breach of their um, financing agreement, well, yeah, those contacts probably don't make sense. So it's really looking at the entire picture rather than slicing and dicing. I believe that's right. I mean, that's the stream of commerce is you had an expectation. So do you agree, counsel, with the position that opposing counsel took that um, based on the theory that you've articulated today, Ford could be sued in any of uh, the 50 states? For this case? Yeah. Absolutely well, not. And absolutely not, and why not? Mr. Bandemir can only cannot sue him in any other state. That is Bristol Myers. That's the holding. Is if you don't, if your litigation doesn't have any connection to the forum, then you can't be there. I mean, Bristol Myers specifically says, look, the the folks from Texas, the seventy-two Texas people, the folks from Ohio, they could probably sue in their home state. I mean, that's what footnote one of Bristol Myers says. For jurisdictional purposes, the important question is generally, as it is here, where a plaintiff was injured. So, so it's driven solely by the plaintiff's injury. I yeah, mean, where the, where I, the occurrence or the, the um, incident occurred, for sure. So you have to look at the context. Well, counsel, though, I think uh, your opponent said, when I quoted that language to him from BMS, he said that's talking about um, uh, activities of the defendant. And we talked about principally where an activity or an occurrence that takes place. That I, He basically said that I'm, I'm misreading that, that they're talking about activities or occurrence related to the defendant. I, I read it like you do, Your Honor. If, if you look at Bristol-Myers, it says, as noted, the non-residents were not prescribed Plavix in California, did not purchase Plavix in California, did not ingest Plavix in California, and were not injured by Plavix in but California. But counsel, what do, you, what do you do then, you know, as Mr. Uh, Morota, uh, I'm sorry, did I butcher your name, Morota? <laughs> indicated that, well, you got to keep reading, though, because then the court goes into Walden, and Walden's pretty clear that, uh, it, it, you know, you, in order to have specific jurisdiction, um, you've got to look at the defendant's contacts with the forum, and that's why they said you can't can't sue this out in, in Georgia. Sure, but that defendant, the DEA agent in Walden, had no connection with Nevada. And I think this court's opinion in Riley, you address Walden specifically head-on, and you, and you point out that it is a very limited holding. And what this court says exactly about Walden is, Walden, this is a quote, merely held that a defendant's random fortuitous or attenuated contact with a forum resident in an airport while the resident was outside the forum was insufficient to support personal jurisdiction. That has no applicability to this case. The Ford's contacts with Minnesota are not random, fortuitous, or... So, so let, me, let me try my question a little more precisely formulated because I, uh, I think I might have mangled it there a little bit. So, so my question to you is this, then. It is the plaintiff's position here that Ford can be sued in any state in which the plaintiff suffered an injury. Absolutely. As, as has been the law for since Helicopteros. Um, and as, as Bristol-Myers says, two different times. Helicopters case is a general jurisdiction case, isn't it? 
You're correct, John. I was sort of. Okay, so what's the difference in your view? If we adopt your rule of law, haven't we effectively done away with specific jurisdiction? Well, if you look at Daimler and what Justice Ginsburg says in Daimler, she says, look, we're restricting general jurisdiction, but we're doing it with the knowledge that we are not restricting specific jurisdiction and we're not going to start con contracting specific jurisdiction. Well, but counsel, I think BMS, you know, I mean, you're, you're kind of pushing a rock up a hill because certainly the Supreme Court, when they came down with Daimler and, and Goodyear, you know, on general jurisdiction, you know, it's sure. it's now wherever they're incorporated or you know their 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 where they do main principal office, um, and BMS seems to take that contraction a little bit further as it relates to to uh, specific jurisdiction. That's how come they started talking about it's you've got to have those contacts with the defendant and the forum. That's, so that's why, that, I guess I'm saying that maybe that's the big picture view, but I don't think there's any question now that the Supreme Court has narrowed both general jurisdiction and personal jurisdiction. And so, Your Honor, respectfully, shouldn't I, we be I, looking closely at the, more closely at the Walden facts as opposed to, you know. The, well, Bristol-Myers is after Walden, so um, clearly they have that in mind when they're, writing Bristol-Myers. I respectfully disagree that, that Bristol-Myers cont contracts specific jurisdiction. The law has always been there has to be a connection between the forum, the defendant, and the litigation. And in Bristol-Myers, what it says is, look, the California residents, it specifically says the California residents, they can sue them there. The Texas residents can sue in Texas. The Ohio residents can sue in Ohio. But for non-residents to sue in California, now we're taking the litigation and the forum, that, that's the connection that's broken. Counsel, what, what, how do you respond, though, to my question to your opponent about, you know, BMS suddenly resurrects, or not suddenly, but they continue the resurrection of this federalism idea, the suggestion that there might be sister states that have a greater interest and just and as a matter of due process, and, and the due process right is the defendant's. It goes to Ford. It's not yours. It's not your client's right. It's but, Ford's right. And look, so what, there are other states that may have an equal or greater interest in this, and he's saying there, there certainly are, like Michigan or North Dakota. But I think that, that, that is directly on my side, Your Honor, because who has a better interest in policing defendants' defective products against a Minnesota resident than Minnesota? That's what Bristol-Myers says. It says the folks in California, they don't have any interest in policing a drug sold by a New Jersey company to a Ohio resident who took it in Ohio, was prescribed in Ohio, and injured in Ohio. California has no interest in that. Minnesota has a very strong interest in protecting its citizens. But what about Ford's interest, given that this is a design case, a products liability case, that all happened, it sounds like, in Michigan. But it, that did happen in Michigan. But as that was occurring, there was a conceded marketing effort to sell that product in Minnesota. And once that happens, as, as Worldwide Volkswagen and Asahi Metal tell us, once you do that and you start marketing to a specific jurisdiction, you're, um, you're liable in that jurisdiction. Cool. It is not unfair. It's not outside of, um, blanket on the language, the unreasonable and unfair to, to, to be hauled into court in that jurisdiction. That's your choice to make. Counsel, what does the complaint tell us about what the claim really is here? Is the claim about 1994 Crown Victorias generally, or is it about the airbag system, and is that the airbag system limited 
the restraint system, secondary restraint system, limited to uh, 94 Crown Victorias. And Your Honor, unfortunately, we stayed all fact-specific discovery pending the jurisdictional issues. So I don't know the answer. So the complaint, the complaint doesn't make allegations about this restraint system generally being defective? Well, it is a design defect, so it would obviously occur in any 1994 Crown Vic. Now, whether or not that same restraint system is used in the 93 or 95 or the Ford Taurus or whatnot, I, I just The record doesn't tell us that. Okay, thank you. Sure. Counsel, could you help with Julich? Sure. I, so Julich and, and Asahi Metal are essentially the same exact case, right? I mean, you've got a... And both of them hold there's no personal jurisdiction. Sure. Over a Japanese corporation who provides a component part to another Japanese corporation, the component part supplier has no contacts with the United States, no sales, no marketing, no effort to sell their product in the United States at all. And that part gets put into something else, built, and then shipped to the United States. There's no personal jurisdiction. And, and I think sort of interesting in both Asahi Metal and Julich was there was no Minnesota resident or an Asahi, no uh, forum state resident left because those cases all resolved and there were just um, indemnity claims between the um, finished product manufacturer suing the component part manufacturer. So Minnesota has zero interest in dealing with an indemnity claim between two Japanese corporations who conducted business all business in Japan. Well, to be fair, though, Julich starts with the Minnesota resident, James Don Donald Julich, who was injured while providing maintenance, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, I'm just reading from the court's opinion. Did Mr. Julich not live in Minnesota? Uh, no, Your Honor. My, the, the plaintiff's claim is all resolved. So by the time this court got the case to decide, it was just an indemnity claim between the, the, two the personal jurisdiction analysis isn't any different. I mean, the, the insurance company stands in the shoes of Mr. Julich, the Minnesota resident, Th doesn't he? I mean, what, what am I missing here? It, it does matter that the Minnesota plaintiff had, had claims were resolved. In the, if you look at Julich in the last paragraph, uh, it talks about the exercise of jurisdiction would offend traditional notions of fair play and substantial injustice, which is really prong four and five of the test. Really the same thing in Asahi Metal happened. Asahi Metal, you had no jurisdiction, but you had this, the, the stream of commerce theory sort of muddled by, by two different plurality opinions, but ultimately what the court in Asahi Metal said was no jurisdiction because it would offend notions of fair play and um, substantial justice to bring these cross claims, these indemnity claims against foreign corporations for transactions that happened in Japan here. That and counsel, I've got Julish in front of me. It looks like the cross claim was for indemnity brought by the Japanese finished product manufacturer against an Illinois distribution subsidiary. Does that fit with your recollection, recollection, recollection of the case? No, Your, no, your Honor, it was, if, and I'm going to butcher these names, I'm, I'm sure. Um, I, I really don't know how to start to say this. Mikoku um, was the component part manufacturer. And if, if, if I'm reading it right, if you look at right above, uh, I guess, footnote one, or not footnote one, uh, subsection I, it says the, the only claim against Mikoku that remains in this section are the cross claims of YMO, which is a Japanese corporation, and Manny. And I, I guess you're right. Manny is a subsidiary of YMO. So you had a, I guess, a Japanese corporation and an Illinois corporation 
suing for indemnity, a Japanese corporation, for actions that all occurred in Japan. And I think the interesting part is the Japanese corporation, Makoku, had no connection at all with the United States. They, they did everything in Japan. They didn't market, advertise, had no intent for their product to, to come to Minnesota. It just so it's protecting the due process rights of Makiku or Makoku. Sounds better than I'm saying it. All right, thank you. Counsel, does it matter in this case that um, your client didn't own the car, that, that he was a passenger in a car owned by somebody else? Well, so I, I think that's an interesting point that the court makes because it would create a really weird dichotomy in cases. Uh, for instance, if, if, if you had to say Mr. Hansen saw the advertising and that caused him to buy it, was well, that related to, and if so, how would that affect a passenger? Could a passenger in the vehicle not sue Ford where the driver could sue Ford on the same accident, the same defect? Clearly can't be the law, never has been the law. That's why I think Bristol Myers, when it says twice, this is being decided on well-settled principles of personal jurisdiction, we're not changing the law here. The law is the same as it's always been. So I, I don't think it matters at all that he's a passenger. I think if you were to adopt Ford's rationale, it might, and it would create just some really weird conflicting litigation like, like Your Honor talked about, about suing um, the Hansons. I think the same, same issue with practicality applies. I think I've covered my points. If there's no more questions, um, we respectfully ask this court to affirm the Court of Appeals decision. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. Uh, Mr. Murata. Can you address opposing counsel's point about Julich really being a one-off deal because the individual wasn't left in the case by the time we got it. Certainly, Your Honor. Um, that is, I think, describes Julich. It was like Asahi in that the people left in the case were these two third parties. But what I'd point the court to is it's page 575 of the Minnesota Reporter. And the court actually marched through each of the five factors. And on page 575, it talks about the connection of the cause of action with these contacts. And what it says is the sale of the system uh, Julich's employer arose from the unilateral actions of several intervening suppliers. And there were relations only with those intervening suppliers. <clears throat> and there were several steps removed from any sale or delivery into the United States. Now, I, of course, understand that Ford's connection here is not one of supplier and finished part manufacturer. But I think it maps on pretty closely. Because Ford's only relationship to this vehicle entering Minnesota is through third parties. It's through the people who own the Crown Victoria before Greg Hansen did. And Ford doesn't actually even have a contractual relationship with those people. It has no relationship with those people. So that part of Julich squarely supports our arguments in this well, case. Well, counsel, it looks to me like Julich does an analysis that you're really saying we no longer can do. There's the five-factor test from Asahi. And then we said in Julich, the first three factors determine whether minimum contacts exist. The, the fourth and fifth factors go to reasonableness. And then we quote the First Circuit that there's a sliding scale. The stronger the first three, the less strong you need on the last two. The stronger in the last two, the stronger you need. The weaker the, you, you get what I'm saying. Right, and, and, and that's some the kind of analysis parts, that you're telling us we can't do anymore. Right, so some parts of Julich certainly survive, I think, Bristol-Myers Squibb, including, you know, this analysis of the connection prong, and some parts don't, like the sliding scale, and I think that's not particularly surprising. Um, another point I wanted to make, Your Honor, is that there was some discussion of so- Where, where in Bristol-Myers Squibb, BSM did uh, BMS? 
did the Supreme Court directly address the concept of a sliding scale? I, I mean, I would say it's actually the entire thrust of Bristol-Myers Squibb, Your Honor. The California Supreme Court expressly had a sliding scale test. It said, the more contacts you have, the less connection there has to be. And what the Supreme Court said, and I'm sorry I don't have a page number, is that that finds no support in our cases. It's a loose and spurious form of general jurisdiction. And it said the sliding scale test is not the law. What there must be and what is missing here is a connection between the defendant's contacts with California and the specific claims at issue. So that, I think, knocks out the sliding scale. The sliding scale discussion is on page 1781, but, but what, what I keep coming back to is right after they have that discussion, that's when they start talking about, and I think, I know your answer maybe is, well, that's just the facts, but that's when the court starts talking about um, its explanation about what is relevant and what is the appropriate analysis. And that's when the court says, the present case illustrates the danger of the California approach. Um, then that's when they talk about the non-residents were not prescribed. You know what I'm talking about. Yeah, you know, I, that's, I think that, So those are hooked together. I, I think that gets back to the conversation we were having earlier, which is that, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, the Supreme Court's cases tell you a lot of what's not specific jurisdiction. So when it, it says all of those things, it's telling you what, you know, all those things don't add up to specific jurisdiction. Then isn't the converse true? You know, I don't think the converse is true. I don't think the converse is true because the court often tells you that these things aren't enough, but it doesn't address, you know, if you add in one of those things, that specific jurisdiction. Yeah, but I think the point Justice Hudson is making um, is that why would they even discuss those facts unless they were in some respects relevant to the, the, the specific personal jurisdiction decision? Oh, because I think you see it later in the decision where it says, um, that those are the things that make this case easier than Walden. Because what they say is Walden's a case where suffering... But if they're announcing this, this breathtaking new rule that you can't take into account, for example, where the accident occurs, why would they even mention that? I, I, I don't think they, you know, I, I think what they were just trying to say is that our analysis from Walden is this, and this case is even easier than that. I think it's just as you, when you engage in anal analogical reasoning in court decisions, you often say... Here's what our cases say. This case isn't even close to that one, or this case is even weaker than that one, and thus reinforces our conclusion. But I don't think it states the opposite rule, that merely suffering an injury in the forum is enough. Um, and I'd like to point out that footnote one that my adversary was discussing about the focus on the injury, that was actually still from Justice Sotomayor's dissent. I don't want the court to leave here thinking that that footnote's from the majority. And the last thing I'd like to say, Your Honor, is that there was discussion about there's no case about where the first sale took place in the forum, and Ford has contested it. Exactly right. That's the stream of commerce. If Ford had said, you know what, we don't sell vehicles to people, our independent franchise dealerships sell vehicles to people, then we'd be having an extensive stream of commerce discussion. But the stream of commerce discussion ends once the vehicle leaves at the first retail sale and goes on uh, and is taken by others, unless the court has further questions. Thank you, counsel. Thank you. Thanks to both counsel for the help you provided in this case. Um, this matter is submitted. We'll issue an opinion in due course. We're in recess.